Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Riding Unicorns, the podcast about growth startups. I'm James Pringle and my co-host is Hector Mason from Episode One Ventures. This week we have Sitar Telly, Managing Partner at Connect Ventures. Sitar is a very successful investor, having invested in companies like Pact Coffee, Charlie HR, Kieran Medical, Fit, Settled and many others. Hi Sitar, great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So I wonder if we could start off with a bit about your background and career up to now. Sure. So I was born in the U.S. to Indian immigrant parents, raised in New Jersey. Then I went to Duke University, which is a sort of like, like broad liberal arts university that also has engineering. And there I studied engineering and economics, which I then proceeded to do neither of them after I graduated. I really wanted responsibility right away. And just the idea of working like in a lab or in, in as in like someone's assistance wasn't really that interesting. And then like a lot of people, I think, uh, that graduate university, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. So I went into investment banking. I think investment banking and consulting are what you do when you don't know what you want to do. It's a common theme amongst our guests, funnily yeah. enough. <laughs> yeah, I knew I didn't want to stay in investment banking, but I also thought I could learn a lot right away. And that's the, the model of investment banking is to really push responsibility down as much as you can and create a lot of leverage, which I, I really liked. So the bank that I joined, uh, it was called Broadview and it was a boutique that focused on tech M&A. So a lot of their clients were backed by these magical things called venture capital firms. That's the first time I heard about venture capital. I didn't know what it was before that. I had no idea how companies actually started. It's never something that I thought about actually. And I, I particularly never thought about how technology companies started before that. But anyway, so a lot of our, our clients were backed by venture capital firms. And, and so that's where I learned about that. And after a few years at the bank, I knew for sure I didn't want to be a banker. I knew I wanted to move on. I thought I would join a startup, but actually I realized that when I was a banker, like the venture capitalists were pretty involved. And so I thought maybe I should learn the finance side of it first, because if I was ever going to do a startup, like they were going to be important. That was my conclusion about that. And so I so applied to a bunch of different firms, mostly in the US. And then this place in London called Dowdy Hansen, and I didn't know anything about them, but I really wanted to live abroad. I'd done it briefly after university. I'd lived in South Korea for a year. I really enjoyed that. And so... The deciding factor, my decision criteria was I could live in London for a couple of years, which is what it's supposed to be. So 2005, I moved to London, worked at Dowdy Hansen. It was a venture fund within a private equity firm. And the, the venture team that I worked with was great. And I learned a ton from them. And a number of them have gone on to do their own thing. So Carlos from Seedcamp, for example, was, was someone we recruited while I was there. And Yvonne Fernetti, who runs Five Seasons, which is a venture firm focused on food tech, we absolutely have on the show, was one of the partners that I worked with a lot there. So I've worked with great people and I also got to do a few deals, mostly in the consumer space, probably most notably SoundCloud Series A. But then after a few years, it was clear like the venture market was changing, Dowdy Henderson wasn't going to change. And I thought there was an opportunity to build a new venture firm, which wasn't something I'd re ever thought about doing before. But I don't know, when opportunity presents itself, I think you should really, really grab it. So, so that's what I said too. And that's how Connect got started. Awesome. I mean, interested to hear how you go about setting up a venture fund when you don't have much of a track record as a relatively young VC and how therefore you start getting deal flow and all of the things that come with that and winning deals, all the hard stuff that comes with VC. Yeah, sure. So we started Connect in 2012, but we started raising for it in 2011. 
But actually, I think when you think about a venture firm, you have to first ask yourself a bunch of questions that are really important, right? What is a venture firm you want to build? What is a sector you want to focus on? Maybe what's your advantage there? What's your hypothesis or thesis on the market? And do you want a partnership or not? And for me, the, the last one wasn't a question. I always knew I wanted to be in a partnership. I didn't want to be a sole GP. And I think that's, there's sort of two flavors of firm, right? Sole GP or, or partnership. And so for me, step one was finding partners that I really wanted to work with. Uh, and that's where Pietro comes in. And so when we started, it was Pietro, Bill and I, and Pietro and I are the managing partners now of Connect, but it also relates to how you actually get the funding. So it's a very good question. How do you get money when you don't have a track record, et cetera? And especially I have to say in 2012, BPC or you know, the ECF program wasn't really around and it's a little bit restrictive and wasn't as into the micro seed area, the sub hundred million fund range. And so it was really, really hard actually to raise our first fund. Luckily, my partner Pietro, he's an Italian entrepreneur and he'd had an exit in Italy and was really well connected there. And the firm that he sold his company to actually wanted him to start a venture fund. They wanted him to start a corporate venture fund. And he was like, well, that's, that's nice, but I want to start my own venture fund. And so why don't we just back that instead? And he's a really persuasive guy. So he got them to it. And then once they invested in it, actually, you know, I, I think social proof is a really, really powerful thing. So a number of other Italian family offices and angels kind of came into the fund as well. And that was Connect One, you know, almost, almost entirely money from the Italian market. And so it was a 21 million pound fund, which now seems like, I guess, a really tiny, tiny fund in today's market. But in 2012, it was a decent size fund. Not great for three partners, but we weren't in it to make big salaries. We were in it to really create a new type of venture fund. And that was really our mission then. And it's still our, our mission now. I think your, your unique insight really is kind of around product. And, and certainly that, that's how it appears. Why is that? And why do you think that is a, a useful focus for a VC fund? Yeah, sure. So our thesis is the biggest companies in the world are product companies. The biggest software companies in the world put product at the center of what they do, right? So they think first and foremost about the user of what they're building, which is, I think, what a product company fundamentally does, right? It thinks about the problem you're solving, how you build a solution for that problem, and who is going to be using this product. And if you look at the outlier in the venture space, so companies that start off venture funding and have ended up the 10 billion, 20 billion plus companies, they're all extremely product centric, especially in the last 20 years where, you know, arguably in the past, you were able to build sort of terrible software, especially for the business side and get away with it because it was very top down. That's really changing and has been changing I think for 20 years and definitely for the past 10. And it's, it's accelerating now in the, in the last few years. And when you put product at the center of what you do, you build software that people want to use, that they genuinely want to use, that they talk about, that they enjoy using. And that has lots of consequences for the business itself. So one of my favorite examples of this is Typeform, which is, I don't think I can say uh, how much revenue it is, but it's doing really, really well. It's raised uh, relatively little money. It's raised less than $50 million. It's grown incredibly. It's, it's raised 50 million and has about 30 million in the bank. So it's done extremely well, very capital efficient. And you know, one of the reasons is they just have built a phenomenal product. So they have less customer service issues. It sort of grows virally. People like to talk about the product. It's not sort of a, a philosophical thing. There's really strong business 
impact on, on building a, a product-centric and product-first company. That has to do with a lot of KPIs moving in the right, right direction, but also a lot of capital efficiency that you gain. And then also it's, it's I think, really fun to, to back products that people love to use, and especially to back products that tens of millions and eventually hundreds of millions of people like to use. Sitar, you're a seed and early stage investor. So in that early stage, you know, the products might be quite early as well. So what are you looking for in the team that means that you, you know or you feel that this company is going to end up with that kind of market or uh, sector dominating product where it solves something in a different yeah. way? Yeah, so uh, we're so early sometimes that there isn't even a product. So, so sometimes there's actually nothing to look at, um, as in there's no product actually to look at yet. But even when there is, I mean, the, the reality is when you're really focused on product investing, one thing that, that you have to know is that whatever you're backing is going to look completely different in a year, right? Like the, the nature of product is that it's never done. You're always sort of like, what is it saying? Like you're always 1% of the way there and, and product is, is constantly evolving. So even what you see, it's, it's not like that's it. But so what we use to evaluate, so there's a few different things that we use to evaluate. So one is our thesis, which is opinionated products crafted with love and loved by many. And each piece of that, you can actually independently evaluate a company on, right? So if you take the first piece, opinionated products. So first, what are their opinions? What are their insights into the market? What are their insights into the problems they're trying to solve? This is a big driver of actually the product you're going to be building. Sometimes insights can be really generic, in which case you get a product that is actually quite generic. And sometimes you meet founders that have really strong insights and really compelling insights and the product reflects that. So ultimately a product is a reflection of what the founders insights and opinions are. And then there's the word product itself. You know, their product is not binary and it really reflects itself in gross margin. Which sounds like a very boring VC thing to say, but if you're a pure software company, you're going to have like 90% gross margins, or at least 85% plus. Whereas if you have a mix of software and, and services or some non-scalable parts of what you're providing, your gross margin might be like 50 to 60%. And so we look at that as well, right? Like, are you actually building a product company or are you building a product on top of a services layer? And then if you are, how much of that can you productize in the future? Which is an evaluation that we have to make. And then the, the other is crafted with love, which I really love. So craft, I think people think product is magic and anyone who builds product knows it's not. It's like a lot of blood, sweat and tears. There's a lot of craft and artistry to building product, right? So there is, there's a, a balance of intuition and then just hard graft in kind of attacking problems and continually iterating until you get to the solution you want. And then love, I don't think you can build a product unless you love the problem you're working on unless you love the users and unless you love product itself, right? If you are to have a founder who thinks like, oh, the techies will build it, you're definitely not someone who loves product, right? You're someone who thinks of technology and product as a service organization, not as the core and the heart of what you do. And so we're looking for people that really think and, 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 and speak that way. And then find that loved by many is, so if, if you have a product live, we get to see if people love it because it expresses itself in things like engagement rates and churn and how many daily active users do you have? How often are people using it? How often do they talk about it? If it's pre-launch or pre-product, we think about the potential. If you're building a product that will be used a few times a year, it's actually really hard to love that product. You're more likely to forget about it than you are to use it again. 
or if it's something that is, let's say it's compliance oriented, depending on how you approach that problem, it could be something you love or it could be something that gets in the way of your day-to-day -day job. And then the by many is for me the most VC part of it, which is ultimately we're a VC and we're looking for venture scale returns. And so we, we need to know that there's a big market that you're going after. And so I think the thesis is the most important thing we use to evaluate products. We've been through a couple iterations and this one is by far my favorite, obviously, because it's uh, the most recent one, but it's also 100% focused on product and it really helps us put a lens on companies across the entire spectrum, right? When they're pre-everything and just founders with an idea, right up to when they're generating revenue. It actually works across that spectrum, which is why I find it so powerful, even though it sounds very compact. Yeah, I'd say how much has your own products evolved in that time? You know, that thesis is obviously well-crafted and so interesting to dissect it and go through each of the bits. And I'm sure lots of people have VC criteria, but they don't fit into a nice thesis statement like that. So how much has your own process and thesis evolved since you started out? So our thesis has evolved to become more laser focused on product. Our original thesis looked at product, company, founders, market, and it ended up being a thesis that like any firm could have, frankly. Like the only part that was different about it was the bit on product, but it was just so, so broad that it did help us evaluate companies, but actually it, was, it wasn't that useful a tool because you had so many different angles to evaluate that some companies were really strong in some, but really poor in others. And what we decided is ultimately, if, if we are a product fund and we're trying to find the best product companies, our thesis needed to reflect that. And it needed to be a tool that the partners could use to evaluate companies from that lens and solely from that lens. Obviously, we also look at all of the other things. We look at market size and we look at business model and we look at go to market strategy, but we don't want our thesis to try to capture all of that as well. In terms of process, we've actually changed that quite a bit as well. So what we used to do is we'd meet with the company, you know, someone championed it, they'd come in, no pre-read. You're just like, hey, I have a company that I like, here's their deck. You'd flip through the deck beforehand, they'd come in, pitch, and then immediately we'd talk about it and decide if we wanted to do it. And then we went to this event that uh, Mosaic Ventures put together and it was for seed funds and first round capital was there. And Josh Kopelman talked about how they did their investment process. And you know, one of the parts that was really interesting about it is after a company presented, they didn't talk. What they did was they took 45 minutes and they wrote up their thoughts. And then everyone had to contribute in the discussion and everyone had written up thoughts. So everyone had something to contribute. And he said, one of the things it prevented was, uh, so one partner speaks and then partner number two speaks and then partner number three is like, I agree with you what you guys said and is now no longer contributing, but also might not be saying something that they think is a risk or even a great opportunity because you have maybe two people that are really excited about it and you don't want to say like, well, this actually really concerns me because you know it's going to go through anyway. And the problem with that process is that you don't actually identify risks. Even if you want to do the deal, you should still really identify risks. It helps the champion figure out what to focus on. So we changed our process in a number of ways. One, there's a pre-read, just like structured. And one thing that, that helps with is, you know, as partners, everyone has the thing they love more and the thing that they love less. But you might, for example, care less about go-to-market strategy. The problem with that is if you don't have like a structured pre-read, 
you just may not spend time on go-to-market strategy and you might end, up in a, might end up in a situation where founders are presenting to the partners and all of a sudden you realize the go-to-market strategy is terrible, right? And now you have to, and, and you have to decide now on an investment and one, maybe it was a, a waste of time because actually it's so bad, you don't want to do the deal. But also it may have been something you would work on with them beforehand so that by the time it gets to the partnership meeting, actually it's evolved. So it's something you could have gotten feedback on. So it kind of forces every partner to evaluate all parts of the business. You're still going to evaluate some parts better than others because that's you know kind of where your strengths are, but it does provide a more complete view of the company. So we, we do that. That should be done ideally at least 24 hours before company presents. Then we don't talk about it, and what we actually do is answer a set of questions, written questions. Ideally, like the ideal scenario is by the next day, but you know, if it has to be in an hour, then it's in an hour. But we always take the time to write down our thoughts first. And that's, you know, for the reason that I said earlier with, with that first round capital identified it, it gives everyone an equal share of voice. It allows people who maybe are less articulate verbally to demonstrate their strength in a written form. It gives everyone some time to think. You know, sometimes founders are so compelling that you come out of the meeting and you're like, yes, let me write him a check. And you don't think about maybe some of the problems, like some of the, like maybe potentially fundamental problems with that deal. And so it gives you kind of a pause. You get to step back and actually think through these things. And then we discuss. And even in that write-up, there's no voting. So we don't really talk about whether we want to do the deal until the very end. And then we talk about what the deal is, what the terms are, what we want to offer, et cetera. So it, it sounds like a really long process. It's actually, well, for the champion, it starts much earlier because they have to do the pre-read. It can be f- like three or four hours, right? From meeting to term sheet. But I think, Super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I just want to jump back to the product bit just briefly because I have a really strong belief that empathy is important, particularly at an early stage. Yeah. And I think the product piece is almost a proxy for that because I think so much of early stage investing when there isn't much evidence is just thinking, putting yourself in the customer's shoes, thinking how much are these people going to want this product? As you say, they're like loved by many, like how many people are going to want to use it and how strong is the pain point, basically. I wonder if you, whether you have found that empathy is like a a common trait amongst your product focused founders. And therefore it's probably quite nice meeting all these people, interesting people, getting to know them. When we're in, in our thesis, that middle bit crafted with love, the with love piece is where we, we kind of think about the founder's empathy, but it's three different parts, right? There's the problem, and then there's the, the users, and then there's product itself. So we put product aside. You've got problem and users. And most times, product founders have empathy for users and problem, but you do sometimes find founders that are just in love with the problem. And they, they maybe haven't done as much user research. They just have this really strong insight or really strong point of view they see a problem. They're just like, why is this there? Like, let me just fix this problem. Let me just, or there's an opportunity. Let me capture this opportunity. And then people will see that they have a problem, right? So they don't even, they don't even do a lot of user research, sometimes none. But ultimately, if you're going to design product well, I think empathy has to be at the core of product design. And I think all product teams should have a product designer. And if you're a great product designer, I think you're, you're sort of the heart and soul of that product team because you're the one really thinking through the user journey and thinking about what might the user be experiencing at that point or what could the user have just come from and now they're using your product, right? You have to really think through not just the problem you're solving, but also the user situation and the context that they they might be in. 
I think it's it's at the core of great product development, but founders don't always have it when we pitch, but I think they they absolutely put it into the core of how they develop the product. And then I was wondering if you had a thesis on or an opinion on what employee number you should move from founder-led product management to hiring a director of product or a head of product. And add on to that is if there are founders listening, where is the best place to hire product people? Ooh, second one's a really tough one. I'll start with the, the first one. That is a very hard question to answer. You know, oftentimes you see founders lead product for just a really long time. But I think there's a difference between owning product vision and leading on product vision and strategy and having a head of product. And this is what we always try to tell founders, like having someone whose job day and night is product is really important as you scale as a CEO. Oftentimes it's the CEO that owns product vision uh, strategy and is also sometimes the initial product manager. But especially as companies scale, you definitely have more management, as in you have to do more management, you have more fundraising, you have just other stuff that you need to be doing. And it's really important that you focus your time and attention on that. And if you don't get a head of product, your product will suffer, right? Because you don't have someone who is thinking about it night and day. So you have a collection of product managers, but no one who's really organizing that, that function. So that wasn't a quantitative answer, but I think it's more something where you, you start realizing that you can't focus on it sort of, you know, as, as your primary focus is the right time to bring in a, a head of product. But I think the mistake founders make is they think, that means they're now handing off product vision or product strategy. And I don't think that's true. I think product companies that are led by product founders, like they're always, always owning the product vision and product strategy, right? It's in partnership with your head of product or CPO, not you're just on the sidelines, not involved in it. And then where do you find product people? This is actually something we're, we're working on. I think there's a problem in Europe that you don't have enough great product managers. In the US, you have these incredible training schools that like, you know, huge like scaled tech companies like Facebook and Google, et cetera. Like Google basically trains product managers and kind of spits them out, right, by the hundreds, which is great. We haven't had that in Europe, right? So we're now starting to see some really large tech companies that have developed huge product organizations. And what I'd love to do is get more scaled product management training within Europe, right? Because I think otherwise we're just, you can't wait for companies to scale up and, and more product managers to be trained and come up from them. I mean, you can wait, but I think it's a bad idea too. So I think there need to be more product schools and more ways to train product managers and bring people into the discipline of product management. There are things like Silicon Valley product groups course, which I've been through and actually Pietro Rory and I took it together because we just, you know, we we're like, well, really committed to product. Let's we're not going to build product, but we should really learn best-in-class product management. But you could just see, like, when you took that course, it's really built for much larger, larger organizations. There isn't really something for startups. I think we're starting to see some things now with, like, he writes a great product management newsletter. He's starting a course. But I think there needs to be more of that. Because if software is the future, then I think product is the future. And if product is the future, you need more product managers. What do you think about all of the, the sort of no code, low code movement? Because I think talking about this, it kind of makes me think the job of a product manager is kind of becoming more accessible because anyone is able to experiment with ideas and release MVPs using low code, no code. And I think maybe that kind of feeds into what you're saying. Like maybe this is the training. Maybe people sat at home like 
hacking things away, like building little fun things outside their day-to-day job. Maybe that is sort of the training and people iterating and getting those skills, just using tools that are like free. I think being able to kind of get stuck in and build things is becoming a lot easier. But when you look at the, the craft of product development, there's a lot around, for example, user research or how to design a great experiment and what you should be experimenting with and what, what kind of risk to take, how to define what a great experiment is. I could give you all the no-code tools in the world, but you still won't learn that. Or you might learn, but like it'll take you a really long time by making a bunch of mistakes. And so I think there's a, just a lot of easy wins there. Like we've backed some founders that just, they don't experiment. They just go and build things. You know, engineering is the most expensive resource within a company. Why would you ever build anything without testing it first? And you can have all the intuition insight in the world, but really some of the basic, basic testing before you start putting things into code can save you a ton or, or lead you in, in a different direction than what you thought was the right answer. I think the craft of, of product management is still something that people should learn. I don't think it's particularly hard necessarily, right? I mean, there is, there's just really good kind of guidelines and knowledge about, about what you should be doing. There's a lot of noise, but I think we can kind of filter that. And so one of the things we're doing at Connect is, so we, we've just hired a product partner. So I can't say who it is yet, but it's someone who has a ton of experience at a number of scale startups within Europe. And one of his roles internally is to help us source more great product founders, which I'm super excited about, to help us evaluate, evaluate companies as we're kind of getting close to championing them. But his lens will be around product mindset, product skills, how are they thinking about the product org, if they've hired people internally already within the organization, evaluating them, but then also working with each of our portfolio companies. Because even if you're an experienced product founder, scaling a product company is probably something you haven't done. And so your question, James, about when do you bring in a head of product, it's a great question for our product partner to be working with our founders on. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring in someone versus us do it is one is knowledge and experience. And two, I think product founders are, are more likely to listen to someone who has the knowledge and experience and frankly, credibility. And so that was a, a really important hire. I think it's starting August 9th. So we're really excited about that. And it'll be exactly stuff like that. I have some portfolio companies where I've been pushing them to get a CPO in for a while. And I'm like, I don't think I'll ever win this fight, but I think like our product partner might be able to help me out a bit on this one. And I think rather than me push that builder uphill anymore, I'm just going to let, I can't say the name, but I, I'm just going to let him do it. And, and I'll, it'll probably be more successful as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great hire. I think there's a couple of firms that have started to have a sort of head of product on the team, which is really cool. What's your opinion on access to talent in the UK and offshoring as a strategy, whether it be a hybrid model or a complete offshore product team. How do you see that? What's your kind of gut feeling as an investor when you realize that the team's not in the UK or whatever? What's your kind of opinion on that? So what we look for uh, in the companies we back is to have in-house development, but in-house development doesn't mean they're co-located with you. So we have a number of companies that are distributed actually in, in their portfolio. Some started over the last year plus. And so they just took advantage of the fact that everyone was remote anyway. And others kind of did, did it by design. So they've been remote first, they've been distributed for years and they've been distributed from the beginning. And, and I actually think the question now is not whether you offshore or not, 
it's really, do you have in-house development or not? And then what's the structure of your company? Is it distributed? Is it co-located or is it whatever hybrid's gonna end up being, which I think no one actually knows. And we have a number of companies now that are distributed. And we have one company in particular called Oyster that actually helps you hire people from around the world, wherever they are. A lot of the, the headache around hiring people in other geographies is the admin, payroll, HR bureaucracy. Oyster takes all of that away and turns it into software. And so you can hire anyone in a number of countries around the world and they're increasing which countries every, every month. So I think increasingly it'll be that. It'll be, if you choose to use outsource development, I think you, you can't really be a, a product company or it's very hard to argue that you're a product company unless what you've chosen to do is to say, well, we have a fully dedicated team. They're just based in X country. And we actually have a couple of companies that have done that as well. They have a fully dedicated engineering team just based in another country. So a com company I invested in recently, Wolf, founder is in San Francisco. And there's a couple of people in Boston. The engineering team is in Ukraine, but the CTO is a full-time employee of, of Wolf and the engineering team are full-time employees of Wolf. I have no, no problem with that, with that situation. I think talent is evenly distributed around the world. Opportunity is not. I don't think it makes sense to just hire people in London all the time for your company because actually you're probably not hiring the best. And even if you are, you're paying through the nose for them, right? You should find the best talent for your company. If you are okay with a distributed team, and I know not all founders are. I used to be really uncomfortable with it because I like some of the magic that comes from being co-located, but I think there's increasing software that actually helps you recreate some of that, some of the spontaneous conversations. I think we're only going to see more investment in that area. So we're only going to see more and more remote companies. And there is definitely a future where remote distributed companies are much stronger than co-located companies. That was a long winding answer, but like if I were just answering your question of offshore development, if your tech and product team is not part, not a full-time part of your company, I, I, we wouldn't consider you for investment. That's super interesting. In the edit, we'll just go back and scratch out Oyster and replace it with Omnipresent, but that's absolutely fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that's good. I wonder what, what excites you about the next five or 10 years in, in VC and, and maybe in life in general, in the world. So in venture, I think, kind of same as last 10, I find the last 10 years in venture in Europe really dynamic, really exciting. If I think back to, so I'm going to date myself now, I moved to London in 2005 you wouldn't recognize the venture scene as it was then. It was all closed doors. Everyone wore suits all the time. People were kind of standoffish, a little bit snobby. It was really hard to get in front of a VC. I had a shocking number of meetings with people that were just friends of a partner. So they were like kids that were friends of a partner. And I was like, so this is how you get in front of a VC. You know, it was like the worst possible companies you were looking at, but you had to do it because there was a relationship there. And yeah, like people that were genuinely good founders really struggled to get funding. I mean, I've, I've known some of these guys for like 15, 15, 16 years, and they really struggled to get funding. And meanwhile, there is this new generation of VCs, which at the time it was like, Rashma was at, I think, 3i, and Carlos and I were at Dowdy Hansen. And at the time, Chris Morton, who now runs List, was at Balderton. And there's a number of us. And we worked in a completely different way than everyone else. And for a while, there was sort of like this, this kind of double venture market where we would see really exciting stuff and then it couldn't get funded. 
you know, and it was so it's a little bit depressing. But then after a few years, I think the US example really changed people's mindsets. I think initially, like European venture funds were really hesitant to invest in internet businesses, like sounds crazy just to say it, but they were. The fund I worked at didn't understand SaaS. They just thought software should be like on premise. And, you know, they weren't dumb. It's just they'd worked in technology for 20 years and they just weren't seeing the, the market shift. If I look at venture now, I think it's far more open-minded, far more diverse, far younger. And that's not ageist. It's just, it is younger. There's, there's a much greater spread, I think, or, you know, the standard deviation of VCs is just much, much higher. It wasn't this high when I started. And it's easier to get into venture, which I think is great because it brings different people and different backgrounds into venture. And there's way more venture products. Like people don't think about this, but before you were like, raising friends and family, which isn't a thing most people can do. And it, it really privileges some people over others. And then you had to go and speak to a VC who wanted, I mean, back then a, a series A was like two and a half or 3 million. So <laughs> that part of the market's really changed. Uh, but they wanted to see, you know, a lot of traction. They would oftentimes put in a CEO on like the founders would be the founders, but they would immediately bring in a, a professional CEO, even at the, that really early stage. And so, I, you know, I, I think a lot of that stuff is changed for the better. There is way more money available all along the spectrum. The U.S. takes a European venture a lot more seriously. And I think for the next 10 years, that's only going to keep going, right? I think we're going to see more and more ways to finance a company. I think we're going to see more exits or IPOs. I hope IPOs and not just exits that lead to more angels and, and more people becoming uh millionaires through joining a startup. So joining a startup will be more and more attractive. And I think there's only going to be more big opportunities to tackle. And because the world has become quite flat, especially during Corona, I think we're going to see more of these big companies built out of Europe, even more than in the past 10 years, which has actually been quite impressive. I think about what was there in the previous 10 years versus the, the, the last 10 years. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. The whole exited founders becoming angel investors because I think there is going to be a big shake-up and the the sort of early stage ecosystem is going to become far more distributed with kind of almost ex-operators acting as micro funds and I'm sure like, over time if you just extrapolate out from there then perhaps they start replacing the seed funds the series a funds and, and maybe you know this is probably looking way into the future but I think things will look very different yeah it's true and you know one thing that's interesting is you look at the U.S. as like it used to be U.S. was like 20 years ahead I think we've closed that gap a bit, but it's definitely still a few years ahead. I think particularly on this point where you see founder and operator funds, you know, in the hundreds in the US, like everyone has a fund and, and sometimes it's their own money, but oftentimes they're also raising LP money and really competing with LPs as a venture fund. And I think that's going to happen in Europe as well. And I think it's good for VCs, right? Because it, it keeps the market competitive. It keeps you on your, on your toes. And I think that's a, that's a good thing because otherwise you, become stagnant and you don't innovate and that's not good for anyone yeah absolutely and i wondered if you had an opinion on angels sitting on boards we did a recording recently with a sort of super angel who feels that their kind of first-hand founder experience is really valuable to the founders but increasingly we're seeing kind of vcs kind of edging those people out and kind of dominating boards how do you guys approach that and what do you see as like a good board makeup up to series A level? The term board is also like quite a heavy word to be using at seed. 
I think of it more as you're kind of getting together with founders once every month to talk about the big strategic problems the company has to deal with and what are the problems that we could maybe unfuck sooner rather than, than later. There's very little like governance or kind of stuff that you actually have to do at the seed stage with the board. So it's not often you're taking board level uh, decisions. So I think of it more as like, who are the smart people that are really involved with the company that we could get around the table? You know, that are really, really interested and, and have the time and the commitment to do it. So there's the, the technical question of what is a board makeup? I think it tends to be your lead seed investor. And then if you have two founders or three, it's the founders, right? And, and a board should reflect shareholding in the company. But if a board is really is ultimately going to be governance, it should reflect shareholding in the company and founders would obviously control shareholding at seed stage. And so they should control the board. But the question of who is in the room and who should be there, I actually think it should be the smallest group of people you can get that are also the most interested and committed. If it gets too big, it becomes exponentially harder to organize and maybe less useful because everyone kind of has to say something. But I think there's definitely an, an optimal number there. From a practical standpoint, we have a number of companies that have an angel investor, an experienced operator, angel investor on the board. We love them. Like we've had great experience with that actually. And I generally like either NEDs or an experienced operator to be on the board. I think it's really, really helpful. What it doesn't do is is give someone who's maybe financially disinterested a voice on the board because an angel is usually a, a pretty significant shareholder as well. But we haven't seen what you're seeing, which is like an angel kind of getting pushed out of the board or, or shoved out of the company. But I, I will say we also don't have many companies where from a technical board seat standpoint, it's anyone other than the lead investor or the, the, the founders. Brilliant. I think we could talk for hours, but we have to keep it to time, unfortunately. But we told you a little bit about it earlier, but we, we do like to play the business lunch game with our guests. <laughs> so I wonder which three people, if you have three people, you would invite to a business lunch. Yeah, I'm really glad you actually told me this in advance because I would have really struggled with this on the spot. This is actually probably the one that I spent the most time on. So three, I would, oh, I just realized they all start with D. So Daniel Kahneman, who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow and a number of uh, other books about decision-making. And I think decision-making is the core of a VC's job and he's written brilliantly on it. And, and so I'd love to talk to him more about that. Dieter Rams, who is a designer, was a designer. I think he's the best designer of all time. His 10 commandments of good design are timeless and they apply to all products, whether it's hardware, software, or service, like just his 10 commandments of good design are, are, are excellent. And then David Ogilvy, who is like the father of modern advertising. I think tech companies in general, and I know I'm guilty of this, I in particular don't appreciate sales, marketing, and brand nearly enough. And I actually think product companies don't appreciate sales, marketing, and brand nearly enough. You know, they just think like, build it and they will come. And that's not actually how companies are built. And so reading him has really helped me appreciate and understand the role of marketing brand and sales a lot more. Well, that's really interesting. We definitely haven't had David Ogilvy, so that's a, that's a good one. And yeah, I mean, again, as Hector said, I'm sure we could dive into a whole conversation there around branding and advertising. But those know they're really interesting people. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sitar. We've absolutely loved having you on. It's been a pleasure and super insightful hearing about all the various parts of your career and insights into product, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, really enjoyed it. And thank you for coming on. 
it's been my pleasure. I really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Riding Unicorns. Please do engage with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. On Twitter, it's at ridingunicorns underscore. And on LinkedIn, you can just search for Riding Unicorns. If you have questions that you want us to ask future guests, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you have suggestions for future guests, we should reach out to and get on the show. Please also let us know. Don't forget to sign up to our Substack to get episodes direct to your inbox every Wednesday. Go to ridingunicorns.substack.com. Please also like and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. Look out for the next episode.